0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
2: Well, that's because we like diving through research wormholes that end up showing us what Victorian bicycle porn really looked like. I'm Elsa (laughs) Funasan.
1: I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca.
2: I'm Cass
0: Morris, and this is episode 69, The Sexy Things No One Wants You to Think About. All right. Elsa, welcome back. It is so delightful to have you back with us and congratulations on your Hugo win.
2: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to receive my rocket in the mail.
0: Woo! For listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you introduce yourself? Give us all the info about you and your work.
2: Sure thing, my name is Elsa Funasan. I'm a deafblind science fiction and nonfiction writer. My memoir, Being Seen, came out in October of 2021. It's all about how media has failed to represent disabled women appropriately and why it means that you, a non-disabled person, think we look like Mr. Magoo. Uh, I also have an upcoming book called Sword of the White Horse, which is an Assassin's Creed tie-in novel in the Valhalla universe, which I'm referring to as a stabby witch heist. You can find both of these books on Amazon.com or in books sold everywhere. Bookstores sold everywhere. Books sold everywhere. I. It's a day.
1: <laughs> I'm hundred and ten percent in on Stabby Witch Heist.
0: Yeah, that's. Yeah. <laughs> that is a relevant interest. Algorithms would serve that right up to me. Yes.
1: If algorithms served books, but that's a different matter, which we won't get into. <laughs> Not today. today. <laughs> or <laughs> no,
0: today we are here to talk about naughty things.
1: Ooh.
2: Well, it's it's. <laughs> why don't we explain why I'm on this sh- this episode? Because people I think are we probably should. thinking, okay, you write about stabby witches. And disability representation, what the fuck are you doing on this episode? And the answer is, dear reader, dear listener, before I was a science fiction writer, before I was yelling about accessibility toward everyone in fandom, I did a master's degree at Sarah Lawrence College, and that master's degree was on the topic of obscenity law, specifically related to burlesque dancers, sex workers, and the laws that like to stop them from taking off their clothes. Excellent.
0: Excellent. I absolutely love that. It also occurs to me that I would really love to poll like, all the science fiction fantasy authors out there and find out what their previous lives as academics were like, because I feel like lots of us have master's degrees and master's theses. It's like, that's not what I would have expected, but awesome.
1: That or a number of us had other previous careers, like say in theater or the stage, that occasionally push the boundaries of what made people in in the community happy or not Um.
2: it's actually funny because that's how i got started um my mom was a burlesque performer my dad was a drag queen and uh growing up i was exposed to all of the theater that the laws are actually written to regulate and so when i got (laughs) into college i was a history major and i was like you know actually the history of this is pretty fascinating now you may have noticed from the work that I do that I'm a little bit of a troll. So I, I did my master's, my, my undergraduate thesis in history on burlesque as well, and it was at a Catholic university.
0: Just poke that bear. Just poke it right in the eye. They were super
2: thrilled with me.
0: I love that. It, it does point to how how much of these laws happen around or because of or affecting theater theater is sort of such an inherently transgressive space that people get scared of it real fast
2: they do um i think that there's a couple of reasons for that if you look sort of to theater history we've been having restrictions on theater and what you can do and what you can't do and who can be on stage and who can't be on stage and when those people can and can't be on stage since eternity um, I was on a panel at the University of Chicago with Ada Palmer and Cory Doctorow and a whole bunch of other theater scholars to talk about obscenity law and its sort of lengthy history. Um, and we talked about the fact that I mean, even in Shakespeare's day and during the last plague, during the, the, the Black Death, There were laws that basically stopped people from doing performances. Um, And the people who kept doing shows during the last plague, which, by the way, isn't really the last plague. There's been lots of them, (laughs) but it's more fun to call it that. Um, (laughs) Because this plague also shut down Broadway. uh, Is that um, there were these things called role plays and they were filthy. (laughs) Uh, Owl Scream Productions, which is based out of the UK, does the droll plays, and they actually brought a droll play to the University of Chicago. I got to see one again when I went to the Edinburgh Fringe. And if you thought Midsummer's Night Dream was a filthy, filthy disaster of a show, you should go and see Owl Scream's production, because in that production, they don't just hint at the sexuality, they don't just meander around it, although Oberon's speeches do get pretty graphic. No, 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 no. They are straight up just saying, we fuck someone, or let's talk about their pussy, or yes, we're literally talking about fingering somebody when we're doing the Pyramus and Thisbe scene.
0: Oh, boy. There's nothing
2: left to the imagination.
0: (laughs) No more metaphors about stones, just (laughs) actual balls out. Right. Yeah.
2: Well, and like, Mm -hmm. this is a production where, you know, I literally will not tell you what happened, but there was a moment where I'm like, this isn't legal anymore. (laughs)
0: it's like oh oh look that line it's behind you now the
2: line was back there and the reason why that is is because theater is live and live theater has the opportunity to be transgressive in a way that filmed pieces and literature can't because there's always going to be somebody looking at it and saying no you actually can't do that in a live theatrical performance you have the opportunity to take a real long javelin leap over the line. And it happens, it is, that's time eternal. Theater has that opportunity. So that's part of why obscenity law has been written to restrict live theater in a way that I think it has been written to restrict film and literature. But it's different.
1: Because even when you're told you're not supposed to do that in a live show, you can be like, guess what? We're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) You told us no, but... Too bad. We're here. It's happening. <laughs>
2: yeah, like There have been people who have been tasked by the government to go and sit through every single show at a specific theater in order to stop them from doing things. You look at the <laughs> historical records of the windmill in London. There is, by the way, a movie about the windmill. It's called Mrs. Henderson Presents. Judy Dench is amazing. But the windmill was a uh, a folly's house in London in the 1930s and 40s. And they started doing nude tableaus. And the Lord Chamberlain's office literally would send somebody down there to sit in the audience and make sure that none of the naked women moved.
0: (laughs) What a tough job. Because that was the line.
2: (laughs) Right. Because the law was that you could not move if you were naked. You had to be standing still and pretending to be a piece of art. Movement was the problem. Interesting.
0: I mean, I think about Shakespeare's time, and you had to get your script past The Master of the Revels. It had to be sort of approved before it could go go on stage. Stage. But that still leaves a lot of room for interpretation. (laughs) Because the script is not all. The script is not the performance. And actors...
2: Actors take liberties.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they sure do. They sure do. And I think it, it falls squarely in that realm of better to ask forgiveness than permission sometimes.
2: It does, and that's part of why I think it's really interesting to look at how performances react to laws. That's a lot of what my master's thesis was about, was that burlesque performers started developing new ways to get around the law. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. So Margie Hart was born Margaret Bridget Bryan, and she started performing burlesque in the 20s and the 30s. And she was one of three burlesque performers who was in Minsky's Burlesque in April 1935 who were arrested for giving indecent performances. Now, here's the thing about Margie Hart. She invented the panel skirt dance. And what she would do is she would not wear underwear underneath her panel. She would wear a merkin, which is a pubic wig. And so the cops would show up and be like, you're breaking the law, and she'd be like, well technically that's not my real pubic hair (laughs) but that was a lot of how they would change the rules they would say well it's not really my pubic hair it's just my it's just my merkin and so they she also was one of the people who minsky's is one of the more infamous burlesque houses in the 1930s and 40s. It was the one that Fiorella LaGuardia wanted to shut down so so badly that he actually shut down large chunks of Broadway in the early 1940s. That's how much he hated burlesque and specifically Minsky's. There is a chapter in Andrea Friedman's book *Perient Interests that is titled The Habits of Sex Crazed Perverts. And it is a literal sentence that Fiorella LaGuardia said out loud about Minsky's. It was the habitat of sex-crazed perverts. <laughs> Excellent. I don't know what to tell you. I, Burlesque definitely has a conversation with the law. Gypsy Rose Lee was arrested for indecency in 1942. Mm-hmm. And she was like, but I was covered by a blue spotlight. spotlight. <laughs> I wasn't really naked. So this is a performance art that specifically was trying to say it's more complicated than just am I or am I not?
0: So I think we might want to back up and sort of help our listeners think through what exactly obscenity means in, in perhaps both a legal sense, but also a broader sense since it has been applied to different laws over time, certainly. And then what that means for world building. How do you incorporate ideas about obscenity into your world
2: oh that's such a tricky question it's always fun so <laughs> legally there's this quote which we almost titled this episode which is that justice potter stewart said of pornography that he knew it when he saw it everybody likes to say that what that means is that oh yeah absolutely i know precisely what pornography is when i see it that's actually not what he was saying guys Potter Stewart was making it really clear that it's very hard to tell when something is over the line and when it's not. In the United States, we apply something called a community standard. So if something is obscene or profane, according to the majority of the community, then it violates a community standard. Here's the problem with that, which I'm sure some of you are already thinking and raising your (laughs) hands and going, Hey, wait a minute.
1: Who defines the majority?
2: Uh Uh-huh, there we go. Who defines the majority? For a really long time, Christians defined the majority. Not because they were actually the majority, by the way, just because they were really fucking loud. (laughs) (laughs) So the temperance movements of the early 1900s Mm. defined that majority. We didn't have community standards in the early nineteen in the early 20th century, but that idea was still being applied. So, what it actually ends up being is the loudest majority, the people who are complaining the most about something being obscene, ultimately ends up being considered what the community standard is, which is how we need to bring in homophobia, but also how we need to, to bring in sexism. Because what white cishetero men want to suppress and what Christian the Christian hegemony wants to suppress becomes what we consider the community standard And when we say that that's the community standard Well people who aren't even necessarily a minority like women still end up getting suppressed in their sexual Expression or their artistic expression Because the loudest majority wins and that's partially due to societal structures. So how does that affect your world building? Well, who holds power in your world? And specifically, who wants to control expression? Because fundamentally, obscenity is a form of control. Who defines obscenity as a form of control? Not just for expression of artistic means, but also as a way to tell people who they are and aren't allowed to have sex with or be sexual with or express their sexuality. Because you know who else gets told is obscene? Gay pride parades. There are places where you cannot have a gay pride parade because somebody has said that's obscene. People have also said, well, you can't wear kink gear to the pride parade because then you're being obscene and too sexual in public. This is what I'm talking about. So in Game of Thrones, we'll bring in a world building example in fantasy, Who is doing the control in terms of obscenity? It's the High Sparrow. The High Sparrow chooses who is being improper in the eyes of the religious law and then begins to to basically enforce those rules. The High Sparrow has a lot of power because he's the religious authority. This is kind of similar to the moral majority in the United States. Yes, I just compared the high sparrow to Phyllis Schlafly.
1: <laughs> Which I'm here for it. Though there is something interesting there, uh, certainly on a world building sense, where there in Game of Thrones you had that they were suppressing anything involving sexuality, anything involving you know what they considered to be obscene. But what was considered the penance was you're going to walk naked through the through yep. the streets. So the nudity in and of itself wasn't quote unquote obscene right which is at least an interesting thing to play with of what is where those lines exist can be in very different places especially in a choose versus presume sort of way
2: well and the way that i read that is actually that it was the sexual promiscuity that was the problem and that women's bodies were meant to be controlled by the state
1: oh absolutely so
2: by shaming her by literally putting her on display in front of the whole city it was basically a statement of, you have already done this by making the choices you've made, and we're just making it an even wider shame.
0: You've already made your bu- body public property, so we're just going to underscore that. Gross. Gross.
2: It's real gross. gross. It's one of the reasons why I hated that scene so much.
0: Yeah, that that one was difficult to read and watch. Both interpretations of it were just like, mm, deeply uncomfortable.
2: But it tells you a lot about how obscenity and sort of that control mechanism works in another setting.
0: And it's interesting, too, because within that world building, um, the the strictures are slightly different in places we see where that church doesn't hold sway as powerfully. Like in Dorne, they're more accepting of sexuality. They are more accepting of queerness. They are more accepting of bastardy, you know, like all these things. Like there's a just there's part of the same kingdom. And there's some influence. It's not entirely different but you can see where the power structures are different the ideas of what is obscene and inappropriate are also different
2: yeah yeah you absolutely can and i think one of the things that you have to think about when you're thinking about profanity or about obscenity or even even to morality what the morality is in your world that you're building is that that is all coming from a sense of what people are trying to control because that it's all about control Morality is never what are we doing that's nice? We don't actually ever hear nice things coming out of people who are preaching morality. We only ever hear this is what you're doing wrong.
1: Which is why I find this such a fascinating thing in terms of what are you what are you challenging? What what presumptions are you are you attacking when you're doing your world building? Because I mean, so often we're only in the past five to ten years seeing this significantly challenged of that you know things like marriage and monogamous commitment as the norm in almost every fantasy world even I'm going to do my thing again where I where I smack at the Belgariad but it, this is this is one of those things that just the more I've thought about it, the more it drives me up the wall is it treats monogamous marriage as the norm in all the cultures even though the various gods of the cultures they themselves are like yeah fuck all you want. It's great. It's, it's fun. But Where somehow
2: polyamorous <laughs> marriages in fantasy fiction, I don't understand.
1: <laughs> Especially when you have, like, if your God is not unlike Zeus, who's just like, Hey, let's go down to the town and see which maidens we can fuck today. Then that's going to be part of your underlying, you know, religious morality within that. I'm I don't sorry. See
2: how if you have be. Pan as a major god in your pantheon in your fantasy book and <laughs> people are monogamous, you're doing it wrong.
1: Exactly. It, it'd be fun to see a book that actually does turn that on its head, which is being like, why are you why are you only fucking one person? That's not how we do things here. Like that's 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 really selfish of you. Did you think about that? like,
2: I mean, honestly, it would nice to be see polyamorous representation done right and not in a weird judgy way, too. Because to be honest, I think that the, this is reaching a little, but I think that the way that we represent different kinds of relationship structures and the way that we represent different kinds of sexuality in our fiction is a form of control. What we publish, what we highlight, what we choose to make good or bad or evil in our fiction is also a form of showing people what they can and can't do in the real world. Yeah.
1: I did really make the make the best attempt to do exactly that with philosophy.
2: But it's true.
0: It, it's it's a way of reflecting what is quote unquote normal, right? Right. Yeah. Your, and your, yeah. readers your readers feel safer, safer in some ways, in some ways, ways if, if those, those expectations, expectations aren't pushed, aren't pushed, pushed too hard. To. But on the other hand, if we pushed them harder and more often... Could we effect change in the real world? I, you know, that's, that's the big question of fiction always.
2: For, for a moment, let's turn to the concept of the banned book. Because this is also Ooh. a part of the larger question that we have. It's not just what content is banned in the world that you're writing, but it's also what content is banned here in the world that we're publishing in. My partner's kid noticed my favorite mug. It is a banned books mug. It has the titles of banned books all over it. I love that mug. I got it when I was in my master's program because it reminds me of all of the things that we have said no to. And she was like, Do we have any banned books? And I was like, Yeah, we literally just read you one this morning. And she's like, What? Well, we read her Born on the Water, which is the 1619 project's picture book about slavery for kids. And she was like, Why did they why did they ban that? And I'm like, Well, because there are people who don't want children to learn about slavery. <laughs> They think it's bad for children to learn about slavery. And she's like, but well, why? I'm like, well, because white people really want to defend their privilege. <laughs> but that's not the only example. We can go back. Like, James Joyce's books were banned in the United States because they were, quote, filthy. Now, I don't know if any of you have read Ulysses, <laughs> but if you can comprehend the filthy, that's great. But 90% of the people who read Ulysses don't understand it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gave it like two pages and stopped trying. I was like, nah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Joyce and I are not friends. I read
2: the whole thing and was anky.
0: This is making me remember. I went to um, the, the drama bookstore in New York back in the fall. And they had it was it was during banned books week, so they had a big display of of banned books, and it was a really cool display because it showed everything that was um, banned. Also had like a tag on it explaining why it had been banned and and when and and so like a lot of the things were the things you would expect. You know, there's cabaret, there's Harry Potter stuff for witchcraft because that made sense at all. Um, but then there were also things like South Pacific, yep, which was banned because it was considered too controversial to be showing interracial relationships, that that was a threat to American life at the time this thing came out. So it's like these definitions of obscenity, once again, those community standards do change over time. And it also becomes a question of who is the community we're talking about? How big is that community? Can some, you know, things that are obscene in one part of the country may not be considered obscene in another. And then we bring the internet into it and it gets even more confusing. Like, oh, is the internet its own community? Is it, what, what, what standards apply?
2: It's interesting that you bring up the internet because a lot of the obscenity issues that we're seeing now, and I, I'm bringing it back to my academic work which is on sex work and burlesque. But when we get into doing sex work on the internet or doing burlesque on the internet, it becomes a much more complicated thing because SESTA and FOSTA exist. If you don't know about them, you should go do your research. But also, internet laws are pretty much run by the credit card company. I don't know how many of you were aware of the OnlyFans fiasco back in August, yep. but OnlyFans was like, we're not going to have sexual content in- anymore. And all of the online sex workers were like, the fuck you're not like this is how we make our money
1: but also this is what you do
2: right it's literally the only thing that anybody uses it for but it wasn't only fans it was mastercard it was the credit card company that ran all of their receipts being like we were about to get stumped on by the feds for compliance so again you look at the 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 trail it's a money trail It's always been a money trail. It's the people who are making the money or who are processing the money who are making the decisions about what you can do or what you can't do. In theater, it often ends up being on the producers these days. Like, are the producers willing to back a production that's controversial? And then it comes to publishers. Are you willing to publish a book that might get banned? Will that sell more books or less? Human nature being what it is, yeah. And I think
0: that's the kind of thing you can apply in your world building too is thinking about not just who controls and why they want to control but how do they enforce that control is it done you know with clubs and sticks and beating people is it done by making a woman walk naked through the streets
2: is it done through financial devastation
0: or or often some combination
2: (laughs) or is it done through legal devastation the other way that we control women's bodies specifically is through child custody there have been numbers of lawsuits where women have had their children taken away of them, from them. And this, by the way, is within the last 12 years. It is not just 50 years ago. There have been burlesque performers who have been threatened with having their children taken away from them in the United States in the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, I've heard about some of those cases where it's, it's, it's stated that you know your, your profession is inherently endangering your children or something like that.
1: Right.
2: I am one of the people who's been an expert on some of those cases, because what they often come to me for is uh, with the question of defending artistic merit. Artistic merit is this shiny little clause that we have to protect art. You basically have to be able to argue that something is art in order to use it, though. Which means sometimes you have to explain to, in my case at one point, a professor at Harvard that no, really burlesque is art and this crotchety old harvard professor was like but it's stripping and i'm like no 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 first of all we're not going to lump the burlesque the bur- dancers out of the sex work category because no but two it's still art also stripping is art i don't know if you've seen what those people can do with their legs on a pole but there's an olympic sport there so deal. yeah,
0: <laughs> mind-blowing strength just
2: it's yeah. insane yeah. But burlesque performers are often interpreting literature or popular culture, or they're using literal dance. Like, one of the burlesque performers here in Seattle named Lily Verlaine is a trained ballerina who does on-point fan dances. Please feel free to come down here and tell me that's not art.
0: (laughs) Oh, and I've seen the way that they incorporate costuming is just genius, and the way reveals happen, the way that some of them use, you know, fire elements and
2: and balance elements like balls and hoops and oh fire tassel spinning is incredibly dangerous and very much a skill (gasps) it's like you don't just wake up one morning and decide i'm
0: gonna do this to
2: to (laughs) yeah so it's a skill set and i think that's the other thing that people need to think about in their world building is what skills do people need to dodge the law what skills do people need to get around these things how do you write something in a way that gets just slightly underneath the sensor's eye? A really good example of censorship and obscenity in literature is also Ada Palmer's Ter- Terra Gota series, which is all about obscenity law.
0: I'm thinking about you know ways that you skirt the law, and I'm thinking about in Discworld how the Sex Workers Guild is called the Seamstresses Guild because that gives them just enough of a, a legal fig leaf, if you will, to be allowed to operate. But they do actually have one working seamstress who, who, who actually does actually sew literal clothing who is also sort of providing them cover but also providing cover for sometimes the very confused people who come looking for someone to actually mend their garments (laughs) to the guilt but it just sort of points at that like we all know what's happening here but we're gonna wink and nod and allow this this societal function to happen uh, because there is a need for it but we still have to provide ourselves with this excuse
1: you see that same thing happening right now um, on tiktok the people who are sending people to to their only and such the term of art now is that you are an accountant
0: I know I found that out the hard way <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. I used it as a joke in something like meaning an actual accountant and someone was like um do you know and I was like I did not know
1: because that has become the term of art though there is something who's like no I actually i'm an accountant but the joke being that like when people ask you what your job is if you say that you're an accountant there will be no further questions nope
2: it's that, actually interesting because the way that we have portrayed sex workers has changed in the last 10 years significantly yeah. and i'm actually really happy about that because i remember uh, last year i was doing a west wing re- rewatch because it was 2020 and i didn't have anything else to do and i had forgotten about the horrible sex worker representation in the first two episodes Mm -hmm. of the show. Mm -hmm. Where Sam Seaborn is an idiot and outs the call girl that he is dating in front of people because he is a righteous man who thinks she should just be in law school. And I'm like, you know how she's paying for law school, right?
0: (laughs) She's very clear about that, too. Like, yeah, West West Wing is a show that, bless it, it, it... has wonderful virtues, but in some ways has super not aged well and shows the assumptions made by its creators. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think they probably thought that was supposed to be a progressive thing. That look, we're showing this
2: this sex worker in a positive light. I like, think like, they did. And back in the '90s, I think that was progressive. But on a rewatch, you're like, yikes. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and that's another factor to build into things: is what's considered obscene evolve over time i mean i you know being a kid in the 80s where madonna was just pushing the envelope so much and now what madonna did in the 80s is just absolutely the tamest thing compared to what is happening in 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 a lot with a lot of musicians now i mean or the songs in the 80s that had stuff like beeped or changed because that was too risque and that stuff is like kids bop now
2: (laughs) yep there's actually a really charming moment in the outlander series uh during the wedding episode in season one where they borrow the wedding dress from the brothel yeah and like the the lawyer who's working with them ends up going to bed with one of the, the the prostitutes there and then he brings her as his date to the wedding and it's this very chill thing nobody's like You brought a woman of the night to the wedding! It's like, no, she just shows up. It's like, the wedding dress was borrowed from the brothel, the sex worker comes to the wedding with the person she had been sleeping with in the previous episode, and it's actually positive representation. Which is shocking, coming from Outlander, frankly. But (laughs) it's right there. And it's period-appropriate. Like, brothels were commonplace in the 1700s it's not like it was some sort of shocking horror show it was like this is the necessary part of the fabric of society what's your problem
0: the show harlots did a lot of that sort of thing too and how you know there were authorities trying to crack down on sex work in london in in the mid 18th century there were but But it was so common it it could not be exterminated they knew that it couldn't be they they also knew the economy would probably collapse if they tried and so there became certain like allowances (laughs) and a, a woman who worked in a brothel if she showed up someplace else but was at least dressed correctly was allowed to be there she wasn't you know fully ostracized it was like oh yeah that's that's the that's she's going about her life she's buying her vegetables
2: well and i think it's one of the interesting things about that time period too is you the how commonplace it was is to the point where there was literally a gentleman's guide to vice it was a little pocket book that you could stick in your jacket and it had a list of all the brothels in london
0: if you're in the mood for this, visit this location. It was Yeah, it's a travel guide essentially. Yeah, it was
2: basically Yelp for the nineteenth yeah. century brothels. <laughs> so if you're writing in a time in a historical setting, you actually do need to pay attention to this. Like if you're world building from nineteenth century London and you don't actually have sex worker positive rap, you're doing it wrong.
0: But that's still also something you can build in because once again, like where and when these things are allowed sometimes changes and and the work could occur in certain districts perhaps. And that's why, I mean, going back to, as I always do, going back to Shakespeare, so many of the things that were considered obscene, theater, bear baitings, prostitutes, had to happen south of the river. Yep. It's fine. If you cross the Thames, then it's all good. If you bring it to this side of the Thames, you're in trouble.
2: <laughs> right. Well, and I think, you know, you can even look at that In a modern context, Amsterdam has a red light district, and it has for a long time. And that is so commonplace that I don't know if any of you have seen The Hitman's Bodyguard. Yes. During the chase, there is a massive car chase through Amsterdam, and at one point, they literally have a woman in the red light district in a window in lingerie looking through the window being like, oh my god, what's happening? What is going on? (laughs) Love
0: that.
1: Well, and that's how a lot of that sort of workaround goes. It's like this district is okay, or you can do X, Y, and Z, but not W or or Q. That's where we draw the line or things like that. And I think there you can make a lot of interesting choices of how you represent those laws or what those lines even are. Or if you even make it the cultural norm in your societies that you're building, that that's just as much of a job as working in the mines or or working at the lumber mill, and it's treated no differently in terms of, like, this is just manual labor that has to get done because there's a demand for it.
2: I think thinking about it in terms of community standards is also really helpful. Like, if you have a red light district, the community standard is there are people working in brothels. Yeah. If you yeah. have if you have the the gay neighborhood in new york city aka the west village you are going to expect that there are drag queens wandering around and that the stonewall inn is open and that you know you can walk two blocks away and there is a stand-up a piano show tunes bar down the street like there's community standards are not just to say what you can't do but it's also about creating an in culture. And so I think that's just as important to think about is if you're building a space where people can be who they are, that's just as important as building the space where they can't.
0: I I love the the story seeds that could come from something like that, from the desire to build those places, the the need to create those places could be in itself a great story generator and, and great motivation for characters and then the need to protect them once they exist. (laughs) <laughs> Laura Elena Donnelly plays with that a lot in her Amberlo series, yes. which is um, very much inspired by 1930s Berlin. It's it's not, it's not second world, it's a created world, but it's playing with that. And, and the characters are people trying to defend their, their space against encroaching fascism. Uh, spoiler alert, it goes as well as you might imagine. Uh, but it's a great series and it really does play with those ideas, but in a second world setting.
2: I think one of the things you were asking about that's really important... In, in your notes is asking about the layers of reaction to obscene behaviors because we've sort of we've sort of touched on it, but as an example, you know, there's a big difference between who gets punished and who doesn't. So if you are in a world where going to bed with a sex worker is illegal and you have a lot of money and you have connections to say the mob. Your experience is going to be very different from being some random guy who wanders in and gets caught. And it's going to be even different for the person who gets caught with the client. Because that's the big difference. It's the person who's providing the service who usually has the most trouble. So when you're trying to world build around consequences, you need to be realistic about what those those consequences actually look like. If you have, let's just say that you have the mega Catholic Church, it's a theological society, and the church holds all the power. If you commit a sin that they think is really bad, and you happen to be donating and tithing to the church every week, large sums of money, willing to bet you get a slap on the wrist if you never show up to mass because you're afraid that you're going to get caught out as the kind of person who provides, say, obscene materials, you're a bookseller. You sell every book that exists. You may find yourself locked up in the confessional cells down in the basement and never see the light of day again because you have sold one too many pieces of, say, corruptive material.
0: Yeah, and I'm thinking about the places where that, where different types of prohibited behavior overlap. If you are a wealthy and powerful man in 18th century uh, London who gets caught with a sex worker and that sex worker is female. You're probably gonna be able to get a slap on the wrist, pay a small fine, if anything. You get caught with a male sex worker and suddenly you're both in trouble. He's in, he's in more trouble than you, but it's it's life destroying, if not possibly life ending at that point. So essentially the same act, but different reactions based on
2: one factor. The other thing that I want to point out is that even Oscar Wilde wasn't saved by his genius. Yeah. Or his fame. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he just, he he had a wife. He still got sent to prison. So, you need to pay attention to what's believable. Because if I pick up a book and a person isn't being punished according to what the rules of the world building tell me... I'm actually going to believe in the world building less.
1: Which is a big thing, I think, because this is one subject where our own presumptions tend to get imported onto whatever's going on despite the world building, I find a lot. The one that comes to mind so much is Firefly, where we are repeatedly told that Inara is this, you know, part of this. This group that is very respected, Mm -hmm. holds a lot of respect and power. But yet at the same time, we have Mal, who is sort of the voice of the show, constantly just calling her a whore and treating what she does like it is a disrespectful thing. Even though it keeps trying to convince us that the world building says otherwise.
2: It doesn't work.
1: It doesn't work at all.
2: It doesn't work at all. I do not believe that Inara has power in that show. Because of Mal. If Mal had treated her with an ounce of respect, I would have been like, oh yeah, the companions hold a lot of power. But because right. they undermined their own world building, I, I wasn't able to believe it.
1: Just the fact that the word whore has any negative connotation whatsoever in that world tells you, tells you miles beyond what they're trying to... Shows you, I should say, rather. Shows yeah. you miles more than what they're trying to tell As- you.
2: As an expert in the field, like, I would never have used the word horror in that show. Because it yeah. carries weight to the point where if you use it, it has a negative connotation.
0: Yeah, and it would be a more difficult on-ramp to to convince a modern viewer that, oh no, it's a fine, It's the word has been destigmatized in this world. It's like, but we're still going to hear it with stigmatized ears. Like... Yeah.
1: Well, and Mal always uses it in a stigmatized way. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no separating that aspect of it. I
2: just wouldn't have used the word because we. Right. Even the people I know who are sex workers in the real world don't use that word to describe themselves. (laughs) Because it's just, it carries too much weight. It's like there are some words that we can't reclaim. Yeah.
1: But I think that that ties into the challenges in teaching your your audience that your presumptions about about what is obscene, what is not, what is, you know, what is allowed or what is not, I should say, are not going to be the same in this world. And you really have to stop and and take that as something different.
2: You also really have to do your research. If you're writing anything that takes place between 1940 and 1970, and your characters consume any media, you need to know the Hays Code.
0: Oh, the Hays Code.
2: Yeah. Well, because the Uh thing is, though, like, WandaVision actually nailed it like when one division mm-hmm. went 1950s black and white they had the separate beds they wore the kind of clothing that you were you were legally required to wear in a bedroom in a 1940s or 1950s comedy like they actually did the research and they made it believable that they were in a 1950s sitcom but the minute that you have two bed one bed in a married person's bedroom and she's not wearing a nightgown with her hair up in a certain way, and he's not wearing a full set of matching pajamas, and they're not under the covers talking to each other with at least six feet between their beds, you've broken the haze Code.
1: <laughs> but, see, there is a fascinating example of we don't want, we don't want the law to impose upon us we don't want there to be obscenity rules controlling us so we will create our own rules so you don't have to and it's fascinating how sometimes that sort of self-policing then becomes something even stricter than what the actual laws probably would have been and in turned out being once we you know once the haze code was abolished or they, I, it wasn't so much abolished so much as people were just like eh, we're not gonna pay attention to that anymore Abandoned. that's It was abandoned more than abolished.
2: There is a specific documentary that I think people should watch if they are doing any kind of world-building around obscenity. And it's about the creation of the MPAA.
1: Oh, is it... This movie is not yet rated?
2: Yes, this film is not yet rated. It is one of the best films that exists on the topic of obscenity because they talk about how incredibly arbitrary these rules are and how they're made up by people who are just sort of making these choices based on their own personal community standards and not on anything that actually makes sense.
1: It's basically 10 people with their gut feelings. Yep. It's, <laughs> that, that is what the, 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 the Motion Picture Association rating system is. It yep. is.
2: There is a moment in the film that I will share with the audience because I think it's really important. They're talking about the movie, Boys Don't Cry, which is about the murder of Brandon Tina. And it is one of the first films that I ever saw that included a queer lesbian sex scene. There is a female-bodied character who has an orgasm on screen. The MPAA told them that they had to shorten the length of the woman's orgasm in order to receive a certain rating.
1: And it's not an explicit scene at all.
2: It's not. The explicit parts are the beating and the murder and the rape. Right. But no, the actual nice sexual scene where there is pleasure, that's what you have to cut in order to get a better rating that will get more viewers.
1: Which, again, opens up all sorts of fascinating doors of... American society and its relationship to violence and sex. I remember in the early days of YouTube, I saw this video and I never was able to find it again, but it w- it was a fascinating commentary on exactly that where it showed a woman showering but with like black sensor bars covering the parts of her body that YouTube doesn't want you to show. And this goes on for about a minute and somebody breaks into the shower, stabs her in the chest and this this bleeding wound that that she falls down, and plenty of blood and all that and that's shown in as explicit a manner as you could see it. Because the gore is fine, but the naked body is not fine until you kill it.
2: My, my partner is an ex-evangelical, and he was telling me that, like, he got to go see Gladiator in theaters, which was fine.
1: <laughs> that was
2: fine. <laughs> but, but, you know, one single boob in a movie, and, like, oh. everything gets shut down. There, like, there's a head, there's a decapitated head
0: on fire, Flying through the air in like the first three minutes of Gladiator. Yep.
2: Yeah. Also, that's fine. A that's graphic, fine. a graphic crucifixion sequence.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Here in here in Austin, there was an actual letter to the editor that somebody wrote, and this was just people always found this hysterical and pointed back to it of a father complaining about the movie Braveheart because it had the one scene with the naked lady that was a love scene. Yep. But and so therefore, because of that. He couldn't take his boys to see this movie. It's like, that was your problem? That was your (laughs) problem.
0: But
2: but I think this is a good example for people in terms of world building. Like, there are different cultural norms. And the cultural norms in the United States are that it's fine for us to watch people get murdered, but it's not fine for us to see them have sexual pleasure. That's something that if you're building a world where you want the reverse, you actually need to build a completely different society. Mm-hmm. because the reason why we're that way is because we decided to follow the... I can't say that out loud on record. <laughs> you can actually keep that moment, by the way. <laughs> we decided to follow the Puritans and the people who had the Great Awakening and the people who had the Temperance mm-hmm. Movement and not the insulting version of that that I was going to say.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it is. It's interesting how, how much that Puritanical legacy clings to us still i'm also thinking about how one of the big debates that i know happens in the ya community and i am not of the ya community but i you know see it happening on twitter is the idea of sex in ya books and how much sex can there be in ya books and how explicit can it be in a ya book versus an adult book and it's like teenagers have sex y'all like they they know what it is most of them and if they're not having it they're probably at least aware they probably know people who do and yet somehow publishing culture still wants to preserve this idea of teenagers where they are they are pure (laughs) and and none of them would do such things it's like "Mm." and so i know lots of authors are trying to push against that and and deciding like okay can i have the sex scene if i draw the curtain over it like what how explicit am i allowed to be within this realm
2: yeah, I mean, being explicit is tricky because your audience, like, the audiences change what you can do. But I remember when I was a teenager and we we weren't allowed to read Go Ask Alice, for example. Like, that was the big Oogie Boogie monster for my liberal high school and middle school. Whereas for my partner, it was Harry Potter because of witches. So these contexts do change it. Um, there's also a certain amount of just, even for adults, what we're allowed to read genre-wise, what can be put on the page changes. Like there are romance books that I've read where there is no sexuality, there is no sexual content. It is just pining and longing. And then there's the erotica where you get all of the hardcore sex.
0: And in sci-fi and fantasy, there's, there's still a contingent of readership that if there is sexuality, in it they're like oh that doesn't belong in my genre that's that's not that's not that shouldn't be here that's that and it somehow degrades the book out of being in the genre by having those things well this is now a supernatural romance
2: instead yeah. of being
0: yeah. a sci-fi book yeah with the attendant uh, implication that that is lesser and it's just like oh, uh, the, the values that people assign to things are just uh, yeah so <laughs>
2: it's like that's all the stuff that you have to carry when you're world building obscenity it's a lot <laughs> Uh, The other thing that you should look out for is how people swear. Yes. Because I don't actually believe you if you're using the word fuck. And yet no one actually uses it for other things. One of my favorite swears is um, from, oh God, I believe it's from Tamora Pierce's books. God's Teeth. Oh, yeah love a good medieval swear yeah like what what (laughs) it's so good and everybody looks at you and they're like what did you just say is that a swear i'm like yes it is
1: (laughs) that was one thing i kept catching myself when i was writing velocity of revolution in having a culture that was pansexual and and polyamorous as the norm and people had sex basically as a way of saying hi how are you doing (laughs) i
2: i regrettably haven't read your book yet i've been meaning
0: to (laughs) i think you'll enjoy it
1: but i had to catch myself every time i was using the word fuck as like a negative swear or is like this fucking thing is driving me crazy i was like (laughs) no that wouldn't be what they'd say (laughs) so that that was a that was that was a thing i constantly was on the watch for once i but like once that hit me
0: could you still use it as a modifier in like this is the fucking best like could, yeah could it then become a different kind of of modifier in in different kinds of sentences Hmm. interesting
2: i'm currently working on a cyberpunk project where i'm having to come up with new swears for things because like it's a future tech society and we tech it's all english but 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 now they have to swear at tech in new ways.
1: I mean, coming up with different ways for your characters to swear is always one of the most fun things to do.
2: Fran Wilde did a really great workshop on it. And she she had so much fun teaching out people how to figure out new swear words. It was great. Alright,
0: I think we are coming up on our hour. And before I We are. Before we jump to our guest star world building, is there anything Looking over our list that we haven't covered, that we <laughs> haven't covered in an obscenity talk. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't uncovered yet that we would like to? We uncover? definitely want
1: to leave so much uncovered.
2: <laughs> I do want to talk about the think of the children. Yes. Yes. Because a lot of the a lot of the pushback on content has been, well, what will children think? What will happen if the children see it? And honestly, I gotta tell you, as somebody who studied obscenity law and pornography and so forth for years, are the children really gonna see it? Use a bookshelf that they can't reach! Don't put it on (laughs) daytime TV! I know with the internet, like, control is a little bit different, but use sensibility. Like, this is actually one of the things that I find really fascinating, is that we come up with really shitty reasons to not do things. We say oh well the children will find the pornography i'm like your six-year-old is not going to understand what pornography is let alone have like fifis about it they're gonna be like that's a lady sitting on a bicycle covered in ivy and she's not wearing anything oops i brought the victorian bicycle porn back but like kids won't get a lot of what we've been banning and if they do, they can talk to their parents, like have a conversation with your children. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like if
2: you've, if you've raised the kid in, I don't want to
0: say right, but if, if you've raised them with a sense of self-awareness, with a sense of trust in you and, and your trust in them, if they find something they're not ready for yet, they're going to click away from it. You know, yeah. that happened to me when I was a teenager and I found things on the internet because I grew up in the wild west days of the internet when there were no barriers on anything. But when I found something I wasn't ready for, it was like, Oh, I'm not interested in that. Click the little X. If you haven't had these conversations, if you haven't, if you've, if you haven't enabled your kids to set their own boundaries, then they, they might not click away and they might go down a loophole. And I know that can happen to people, but I feel like that is a problem in the raising of the child, not with the content.
2: Yeah. So I want to, I'm going to give you two anecdotes because one of them is actually relevant and the other one will just make you cackle. Excellent. The first one is, why do I keep talking about Victorian bicycle porn? I didn't know you needed a reason. <laughs> uh, well, actually, there's actually a reason why I use it as, as an example. Because Victorian bicycle porn has a really obvious genesis. There's a reason why they made it. It's because during the late 19th century, bicycles came into general use. For women. And suddenly, women were wearing pants and putting something between their legs. And men are useless (laughs) and were like, we can't have women putting things between their legs. It's too sexual. We have feelings about it oh no, we can't be turned on in public. I'm like, well, you're going to have to deal. But this is how we got Victorian bicycle porn, because people found it arousing the idea of a woman putting something between their legs that was a bicycle, and it was a new device, and so then they made it into porn, because that's what people do. People make porn out of things.
1: I was going to say, it's fascinating how whenever there's any sort of technological advance, pretty much the First question is okay. How does this work? And the second question is how can we get off with this?
0: Oh, I've been mean, thinking about all the, the pinups with cars in the fifties. You know. The, oh yeah. yeah.
2: And and to be honest with you, and this is kind of gross and scary, but I'm going to tell you, there has been a resurgence of hazmat porn since COVID hit.
1: I didn't know there was a resurgence in the first place, but
2: I'm not sure what to do
0: with that information. <laughs> 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 Is it like two girls, one hazmat suit? Like what's happening? Like no, wait, I didn't <laughs>
2: ask. Forget I asked. Look, I am not going to answer that for you. But you can do your own searches on Pornhub if you're actually curious, but I'm not. <laughs> um, no,
0: no, my brain is happier not knowing the answer to that question.
2: <laughs> I fortunately do not. I just know that that's been one of the big search terms. It was like for a while there, it was like hazmat porn was a search term that people were looking up. So that's the first thing, is, like, if if we can fuck with it, we will. And if we haven't fucked with it before, we're gonna. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's rule 34 of the internet. If you can imagine it, there is porn of it somewhere. somewhere. Well, yeah, yeah it's yeah. rule 34, but I think it actually just extends past the internet. Yeah, yeah.
1: The The internet didn't make it. The internet just made more people aware that other people were also yeah.
0: into it. <laughs> I mean, it, it must be something about the the overlap of, like, innovation being exciting to our brains and thus sexually exciting there there must be something there
2: if it gives you brain feels there's a good yeah. chance it's going to give you pants feels it's delightful <laughs> delightful all right
1: there was another anecdote that would make us laugh oh god the hazmat
0: was the other one oh goodness <laughs> bring it elsa
2: the other anecdote i have for you is actually from my childhood <laughs> <laughs> This, this actually can just be my world-building portion, it is an old story, but Excellent. like, I want you to imagine a time <laughs> in which there is a Blockbuster video. Okay. Blockbuster video no longer exists. Except in Bend, Oregon. I drove past one over Christmas. It was very strange. Uh, <laughs> my grandmother took my friend and I to Blockbuster on a Saturday. We were having a sleepover. My friend and I were super into Arthurian legends at the time. I don't remember the other movie that we picked, but we found a movie that was called The Lady in the Lake. And we were like, oh, oh it's going to be an Arthur movie. We're so excited. We're 13. Oh, dear. Now, my grandmother checks out the movies, and I distinctly remember the little the boy behind the checkout looking at my grandma with a head tilt. We get back home. We put the first VHS tape in while my grandparents are still awake and they're like, Okay kids, after your second movie you have to go to bed. Well, we pop in the second movie. And within 30 seconds we're very aware that this is Arthurian porn. It is (laughs) filthy Arthurian porn that our little 13 to 14 year old brains are not ready ready for. So we very quickly eject the VHS button. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, nope, nope, this is not the Arthurian nonsense we were looking for, thanks so much, goodbye, and we put it back into the VHS box and we never speak of it again. We do not tell my grandparents, we do not rewind, we do not do anything, we just put it back in the bag and we're like, nope, nope. that didn't happen. Oh my goodness. Which is why I think it's possible to just have this stuff out there because if your kid is actually responsible, they're going to be like this is not for me. I mm. I don't want it. No thank you. Goodbye.
0: <laughs> mhm. Mhm.
2: So, do you do you want to turn
0: that into your your world-building trivia in some way for us?
1: I I am so intrigued.
2: The world-building I'm trivia intrigued. is an unending VHS tape that is only <laughs> ever going to be porn. <laughs> and it updates because I'm the worst. The VHS tape updates to be the at the moment worst porn in the world that you can think of. Wow. That's 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 enigmatic. That's
0: uh
1: it's kind of it's, a horror it, story. It, it ref- but...
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like the ring only with porn. Like It is. It is. You have it seven days to get this out of your brain. <laughs> get the brain bleach right out yep excellent well elsa thank you so much for joining us this has of course been an absolute delight
2: i'm so glad you enjoy my disaster bisexual brain because (laughs) (laughs) completely do i think this episode might be emblematic of how much of a disaster i am
0: fantastic so listeners if you've enjoyed this you should go check out everything elsa has ever done and enjoy enjoy the brain don't Maybe search for anything
2: on Pornhub that you're not ready to see.
0: <laughs> yeah, make your own choices, folks. Make. Don't make try this choices. at
2: home, kids. I have a master's degree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stay in school and you too could learn about Victorian bicycle porn. <laughs>
1: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on February 16th, where we'll be talking to Kate Hartfield about the ethics of magic and magical ethics. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as Worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build Until It Hurts.